On part two of episode 137 of the Vincast, I chat with Alice Lestrange, the other half of Cultivar Vinos and George Wines. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of the Vincast. My name is James Gasbrook, otherwise known as the Intrepid Wino. Uh, and as I mentioned, this is uh, part two of episode 137. Uh, if you haven't already listened to it on the most recent release, I chatted with Lucy Kendall, who is one half of Cultivar Vinos and George Wines. Uh, and on this episode, you will hear from the other half, which is Alice Lestrange. Uh, so Alice and Lucy have been doing some amazing things, importing some beautiful, authentic Chilean wines. Uh, and over the weekend, they released officially their their first Australian-made wines under the George branding. Uh, but Alice kind of has um, a little bit more of the, the the sort of the Spanish language and South American cultural influences. So, um, you know, on, on the previous release with Lucy, we chatted a little bit more about her as a winemaker and uh, and her influences on what they're doing. Uh, and I thought it would be fantastic to chat with Alice about the kind of the cultural influences on their business with Cultivar Vinos. So. Uh, I hope you do enjoy the episode. Please do stick around until the end to find out how you can get in contact with us. But until then, I'll see you on the other side. Alice, thank you very much for making some time uh, in the lead up to a very exciting uh, launch very soon uh, to sit down and have a chat on the Vincast. Welcome. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. I start every episode by asking my guests if they can remember um, the first interaction they had with wine they can remember that possibly set them on a path uh, and a passion for wine and, and ending up you know, involved in the wine industry. That's a great question. Um, I think for all of us, there are a few different ones. I think I'm pretty... Uh, conventional in Australia is one of the first big moments being some big Coonawarra red. And I was like, whoa, this is wine. This is something that really blows my socks off. And then... How old were you? Um, Probably 13, something like that. Okay. Yeah. So mum and dad? Yeah, mum and dad, this is what wine is because that's what they were drinking at the time. Right. Um, right now they're drinking natural booze from Chile. So Great. Know, evolution happens. Um, Nepotism. Yeah. <laughs> something like that. Some kind of cronyism, yeah. Um, and then I think became quite in love with classic European wines and had actually one defining moment would have been a sauterne that I had at the Royal Mail Hotel uh, at the very end of a degustation. And then it made me think of lavender at the time I was drinking it. And then that night I had this epic dream where I was in this field of lavender and it was just this whole sauterne thing. Wow. Um, Probably the most defining one after that would have been having um, Anton's Savonet at uni, and that would have been the first natural wine that I'd tasted mm -hmm. and blew my socks off. Was this sort of fairly um, early in the kind of the, the burgeoning natural wine scene in Australia? Yeah, super early. I was young, um, and I'm still young, but it would have been about about 10 years ago. Um, yeah, and I was... Lucy, my business partner, and I drank it together, and mm -hmm. we were working in sort of conventional wine at the time, retail. Okay. And actually we were – so we drank that bottle and then thought up the crazy idea to go to Chile 
or South America or something or start a wine business. We had no idea what we were like. We should do something in wine professionally. Right. Okay. So there was that kind of profound in, in impact that yeah. that wine had. Yeah. I'm not sure what Anton put in that wine, but um, we definitely got a Hopefully grapes. <laughs> Hopefully grapes. I think it was grapes and all the bacteria. But um, yeah, it definitely had a big impact on us to try something that was just wine in a very raw and authentic way that we hadn't experienced before. Sure. Yeah, it's pretty cool. So um, whereabouts did you grow up? Right around the corner in Ascot Vale. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. And are your parents um, multi-generational Australians? Uh, yes, they are. Um, I actually don't know a whole lot about my history, the, you know, English area. It's pretty common in Pan, Australia. Pan-England. So. Um, I don't know. Yeah. I My great-grandparents came over here, I think. Okay. Um, but you're a hardcore... Northern suburbs of Melbourne? I uh, say west, yeah. West? Okay. Yeah, west is best. Northwest, um, yeah. One time I lived in Fitzroy and that was a little too far east, so <laughs> then I ran back to Footscray for about five years. Um, yeah, okay. No, but Victoria, I got myself from Melbourne. Right. Uh, so growing up, did you have kind of particular passions and th- thought about like long-term what you wanted to do when you were all grown up? Um. I think I was always one of those kids that had absolutely no idea mm-hmm. um, and that defined me well into my mid-twenties. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Actually, when I met Lucy, my business partner, first day of uni, we became best buddies immediately. What were you studying? Uh, arts, English lit. Yep. Yeah. Same here. There you go. And again, like I, I went into uni and I was like, I just want to study something I'm interested in. Yep. I'll, I'll figure out what I can do as far as a job later on, but, you know, I'll, I, you know, I... I did English literature and Japanese. Oh, there you go. I did English lit and Spanish. Um, Why Spanish? Uh, I had learned French previously and done an exchange and all that. So I spoke that, um, did my, you know, gap year there and blah, blah. Developed a pretty strong, I don't say hatred, but dislike of French culture and people just because I had a pretty rough experience in terms of how cold they can be as a people's. Um, Mm. And don't quote me on that because it's an awful generalization. But um, I remember I hopped the border to Italy and then to Spain and just experienced this immediately warm, generous, Mm. physical, touching, it's not just It's not just a difference in in climate that, you know, they they are genuinely, you know, warm. And I I had the same experience, like coming from, from Germany and Austria into Italy. You know, you kind of just feel... You know, you, you you go into a you know a piazza in in Italy, and you just sort of feel more warmth. People really? generally, and you yeah. see people touching each other and stuff like that. Yeah, know? and I was very drawn to that that type of culture. Sure. Um, there's something in me that just um, yeah, I felt very isolated and alone in France, and people weren't. I was used to people just going out and making friends, and it was really easy. As a you know, Australian culture does that pretty well, but. In your travels in, uh, in in Spain, did you find that people were more willing to kind of go out of their way to help you and just they, more willing see to have you fun. and think that you were lost and go, oh, can I help you? Yeah, that totally. Kind of and chat and like welcome you into their friendship circles really easily. And, yeah. Um, and my experience of learning French was one of being criticized all the time by French people for not saying things correctly. Whereas in Italy and in Spain, it was like, oh, my God, she's giving it a crack. This yeah, is amazing. Yeah. And they're just, like, encouraging. And yeah. So then I went back. When I started uni, I jumped straight into Spanish and um, did French as well, but just grabbed Spanish by the balls and 
loved it and then went to live in Mexico for a year and wow um, yeah so that's where I got my Spanish good and then um, yeah I think that's where I also uh, became in love with agriculture on a small scale in the developing world and what trade means for those kinds of contexts yeah um and coming from like a love of wine and the finer good things in life and only knowing wine to be a first world to first world product um going to the third world and seeing what it was like to grow commodity crops on scale that is you know smaller than i could have ever imagined was something yeah pretty life-changing and something that i wanted to keep pursuing um, it's something that really is missing i think growing up in melbourne you know, myself, like I had no kind of concept of where the food on my table was actually coming from. Like mm. I had no idea about, you know, farming and, and growing things. It was just like, you know, that's something that generations, you know, probably since born since maybe even like the 60s or 70s, like mm. they'd just grown up with supermarkets and stuff like that. And so, totally. you know, farmers markets are obviously a great way to actually connect with people who are growing things and get an appreciation for that. But, you know, even then you're still not going to the source. So yeah. it must have been pretty, pretty amazing that being, yeah. you know, particularly in somewhere like Mexico. Yeah. Um, and I think you're right here. We, our in, a, in our middle class way, our way of reconnecting with that is to, yeah, go to farmers markets or grow veggies in our backyard. Yeah. And, it's a very like a lovely thing to do um, and you do it by choice. I think in the developing world, the supermarkets are a thousand times more expensive than growing it yourself. And so they have to do that and they want to. And, you know, seeing people and staying with people who grow everything that they eat um, by necessity and mm-hmm. live on live subsistence lives was, yeah, one that really impacted me in a in a really positive way, like, um, those kind of people are very, very in touch in the hand to mouth way with the climate. And I think, um, yeah, compared to what I knew of wine, it was very different. Like wine seemed to be a choice, you know, and I know we talk a lot about vine growers as, as farmers and put them in that same category, but there's something very beautifully choice and, you know, um, beverage product oriented around wine making. It is a, for me, that beautiful thing about being a human being, it is agricultural, but it's also, it's not a food product. And so, yeah. that's That's one of the things that I particularly love about the Italian um, wine culture is that by and large, they, they still run it as a farm. Mm. Like, you know, the, the common term for a, wine, a winery in Italy is azienda agricola. Yeah. So, you know, a farm, an agricultural farm. Yeah. And they still they still have olive trees and they make their own olive oil and, and you know, and they still run pigs or, or you know, that kind of thing. And mm. they're still sort of having, you know, it's not wine, growing grapes for wine production was just a part of their their business. It was totally. just a part of their life. And, yeah. and in the, you know, obviously in a really traditional concept, um, it was you know, the wine was just for drinking and, and not necessarily for sale, you know. Yeah, exactly. And this is what we found in Chile as well. Like when we got there, this is jumping a few years ahead, but, um, yeah, found that a wine was a food product and it was part of every meal and it is part of your caloric intake the yeah. same way that 
Saison beers in provincial France and that kind of thing. Um, I think that's one of the things that people have been really connecting with recently with Georgian wines. Yeah, totally. That's, I mean, obviously there is that amazing kind of unbroken tradition of using the, the cuivries and stuff like that, but that's one of the things that I like about the, the Georgian concept of wine is it's a family thing and it's just, you know, it's partly it's for nourishment. Yeah. It's, it's you know, holding the wine in the cuevries on skins is trying to get as much out of the, the grapes as you can and, totally. and, and providing sustenance. Yeah. And a funny anecdote in Chile, there's a, a drink that they make out of their pipeño, which means red wine. Um, it's almost like, I don't know, some kind of a Nutribullet. It's a red wine, um, roasted wheat flour and sugar. And you mix it up in the morning and it's kind of like a thick pink shake. Mm-hmm. And the workers just down an entire glass of it, so you get alcohol, carbs, and sugar. Right. And then they run off into the vineyard, and they're fine till lunchtime. Um, and they're just sort of, <laughs> anyway. So seeing wine used in an actual, you know, su- substance way was really cool. Um, but that's what was I think drew us to Chile, or me particularly was. So anyway, after working in, after living in Mexico and being drawn to that kind of way of living. And wanting to develop relationships with these people in that trade. Like I, I'm a firm believer in the power of business and business for good and what that can do and the direct impact that has. Uh-huh. Um, and so then I started working in specialty coffee as a green buyer and working for a roastery here in Melbourne, which I still do. And, um, yeah, like obviously I have a love for special beverages. Um, but so trading with small producers growing amazing coffee beans and, bringing them here and making them into amazing beverages. And I sort of didn't know, I always separated wine in my head as something very distinct from the realness of coffee. And I think that in 99% of the cases, it is incredibly distinct. But um, when we went to Chile to see what was going on in the South, we found subsistence grape growers who were, you know, selling grapes below cost of production and who've been doing so for the last five to 10 years, but the vineyards have been in their family for 200, 250 years. And yeah. They're making these wines that are literally feeding communities and themselves and they can't sell them, they can't bottle them, they're forced to sell grapes. And, yeah, it was a sort of a social and environmental crisis going on, which it still is and it's getting worse every day, that made me go, whoa, like this is this is something that I didn't know existed in the world of wine. I had this very first world perspective of what wine was and, yeah, it impacted us heavily and tasting their wines and being like, whoa, this is exciting, energetic stuff just made us want to start a business down there. Okay, so we're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves. Let's take yeah. it back to, um, so what were you doing in, you are working for the coffee roaster. Did you, did you work in wine at all before then? Like you mentioned yeah. earlier on about, um, uh, about uh, wine retail. Yeah, so while I was, I was at uni, I was working at Black Arts and Sparrows Great. Um, for a fair while. Um, Luce was working at, um, Winehouse. Uh huh. So we had access to a lot of, yeah, a lot of great European wines and a lot of classic stuff. So we had, you know, new stuff coming into our lives in Black Arts and we had some, you know, old classic palette training and Luce was doing her set and she'd just teach me everything that she was learning. Yeah. Um, then I started working for... Jed wine distributors, so uh-huh. imports from Argentina. Yeah. Um, Is that kind of where you started to get a little bit more intro into the, the South American wines? Yeah, totally. Um, 
and we'd been to Argentina at that point as well, just to on a you know one of our uni holidays, just to see what was going on in a wine sense. Um, so what? Did, so you went to Mendoza, I'm guessing. Yeah, we did Mendoza. We did Salta. We did you know all of the Patagonia. Yeah, uh, we went down to there. We cool. did quite a few different wine regions. That's the one I didn't get to. I went to Mendoza and Salta. Yeah, they're it's, they're all fun. Yes. Um, and working for Jed was great because we got to experience the entire plethora of what that country had sure, to offer. Sure, yeah. sure, sure. Um, and Chile to us seemed super undiscovered. Like Argentina is quite known to people and certain parts of Chile are known to people, but we kind of heard rumours of what was going on in the south of the country and knew that that area hadn't really been explored yet. Yeah, look, it sounds like it was about that that time when I was working back in, in retail, in independent retail, and I was being introduced to, to a few things from South America. You know, you had like established importers working with, you know, at that point, really serious producers like Catena Zapata and stuff like that. And then kind of, I remember a fringe importer and distributor had Santa Carolina and I was like, wow, these wines are really good and they're yeah. so cheap. It's so cheap, yeah. so cheap. And of yeah. course, you know, this is long. This is, then of course I went to South America and I saw, you know, that they make some amazing wines, but I never actually got the opportunity to, to sort of, see some of these slightly more authentic. And, and I remember just sort of driving around Chile saying, why are they working with all these French varieties? Totally. <laughs> uh, why, uh, surely there, might, there must be, you know, more Spanish varieties. Mm. That, um, or, you know, yeah, like these wines, they're very good wines, but they're just, they could come from somewhere else. Totally. They could come from Australia or California yeah. or something they're like that. Worldly wines. Yeah, and that's what a lot of, that's what we thought, and that's what a lot of, Chileans think too. Um, so down in the southern three valleys of Maule, Tata and Biobio yeah. is where a lot of the original Spanish plantings still exist. Right. Because right. the Argentina kind of context was sort of more Italian migration. Yeah. That's kind of what I, I got the impression. Yeah, exactly. Mendoza. Yeah. Um, and all of their Mission grape, which is the original Spanish stuff, is pretty marginal. Um, mm. There's, I mean, Torontes is one of the original ones as well. It's been a little bit... Uh, adulterated over time but they're sort of pushed north or pushed to some more marginal regions and they've very much been influenced by post-war immigration Mm. um chile was to a certain extent but only focused in areas around santiago basically Mm. it's pretty kind of wild west to go down south um and that big industrial uh industry in the middle of the country that makes a lot of that cheap box wine that we all know and love um you know, the bulk of what they do is buy grapes from the old Spanish stuff down south and then... Just to give them a bit more volume. Just to give it volume. And then they take all their highly extracted and alcoholic Shiraz and Cab or whatever and blend it all into right. a beautiful box. Yeah. Um, and that's really done a lot of damage to Chile's reputation. And we do think of South America as, oh, my God. Because they look at that sort of stuff. It's like, oh, that's the shit stuff that we just blend in. Totally. Or they look at it as, oh, that's what my grandpa used to make. And yeah, that's okay. just like peasant wine. It's yeah, disgusting. Yeah, yeah. And it's not export quality. Yeah. And, okay. you know, it's not. And, and that's the other thing I found fascinating, the difference between Chile and Argentina. Chile, there, there wasn't as much of a, a wine culture. I mean, you know, like, totally. like the more common drink you'd have in Santiago would be Piscola. Yeah, or you just know. Coke. Yeah. Or beer. Yeah, yeah. yeah or beer, exactly. Like they, yeah. they, but so Chile struck me as one of those rare wine-producing countries where they export vastly more yeah. than they actually drink in the country. Much more Whereas so, Argentina, 
um, you know, in, whether it's Buenos Aires or whether it's, you know, in Mendoza, for example, they drink wine. Totally. They drink their own wine. Yeah. They drink most of their own, you know, but like 80 it's the small 80%. family stuff, the immigrants after World War II mostly. Yeah. Um, and Chile didn't get that and they have a very different economy. It's much more, I mean, there couldn't be two more opposite countries really. Yeah. Um, Chile's got a very open um, free market economy going on. Argentina's always had those, a lot of trouble with their economy and their monetary system and yeah. uh, very European way of thinking about the world. And Chile is, I mean, think of them as gringos. They're, they're super, like, northern-looking um, yeah. towards the US and their economy speaks to that as well. Um, so, yeah, we what you get in Argentina is a lot of very small family-run wineries. Um and I suppose the harshest critique against that is that they're all doing the Bordeaux recipe. Um, so Malbec, Malbec, Malbec. Yeah, but made like it's international style. Cab or yeah, yeah, and it's yeah, yeah. Um, extracted and it's boozy and it's ripe and they're very obsessed and it works, with oak. It works and, with a certain market, but it's just not as exciting. Yeah, and they I mean, they have a great export market to the States. You know, they make wine to suit Robert Parker and um, I think – a lot of vineyards do that in Chile on a slightly larger scale. And then there's the big industrial export box wine market that yeah, Argentina okay. doesn't really have. So yeah. I think what Chile is a really complicated winemaking country in that sense. And it's, you know, it's interesting that you said before that um, you're surprised how good these wines are for so cheap. And that is true, but it's also been very damaging and it makes it hard for us to sell like premium Chilean wines that are, you know. But this is exactly the same problem that Australia had in the last yeah. sort of 10 or 15 years, Yeah. Um, particularly with global financial crisis and a strong Australian dollar and Australian wine suddenly became more expensive. And that was as um, South American wine producing countries and South Africa and even parts of Europe mm. started to, their quality for um, inexpensive wines really started to take off mm -hmm. and the economies of wine production in Australia suddenly started to become a lot more expensive. Yep. And, and, and that was why, you know, we had to start focusing more on not just premium yeah. wines, but talking about regionality. And, and, and I think to a certain extent, that's probably what Argentina and Chile will st need to start focusing more. And I think they did get yeah. a jump start on it, but, um, yeah. but, but yeah, that, that it was, you know, as, as amazing as it was to get a lot of Australian wine into people's glasses around the world, Yellowtail has kind of yeah, set a, 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 preced yeah. a, a precedent for Australian wine that <laughs> is, yeah. you know, and, and so, but I guess the difference in Australia and Chile to a certain extent is in Australia, we kind of, we say, we make great wines. We make world-class wines. How come the rest of the wine, wine world doesn't appreciate that? Whereas in Chile, they kind of go, we make great wine. Okay, cool. Yeah. Uh, totally. Uh, yeah. They don't, they don't, they're not in, in, and I guess it's that kind of slightly more authentic Chilean wine that they're not necessarily in touch with and they're not, yep. um, unless you are a, a family involved with that. Yeah. And that's, that's a, that's a big challenge because the amount of growers in the South of Chile that work in the old way, work with the old varietals and are making very authentic and historic wines there's a handful of them that are able financially to put their wine into some 50 mil bottle and put a cork in it and put a label on it. You know, yeah. it's, um, it's still a context where most people are subsistence farmers, they're peasants. Um, they don't have a market and don't have someone saying, please put your wine in a bottle. They have someone saying either give me your grapes and I'll pay you below cost of production 
or put your wine in a massive five-litre-gallon thing and the corner shop will buy it off you, mix it with water and sugar and sell it for three times more. You know, like it's a it's a really difficult context to um, even get your product on the market. So, um, yeah. And I, and I guess like I, I remember when I was at Grow Assembly a few years ago and one of the guys from Proud Mary um, was talking about that kind of going to the source and going to small family-owned farms and mm. buying um, coffee direct and and then sort of, you know, we, 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 for prices we still don't think are, are that, you know, outrageous and they kind of go, holy shit, the big coffee companies would never pay that much. Totally. And, 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 and so it's, it, it's, it's kind of a, a similar scenario it where is, you're yeah. actually going there and saying, okay, we want, we want to buy your wine and we want to help you kind of put it into a, you know, into a bottle that we can sell it in, in our market and, 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 you know, yeah. they're kind of going, cause they, cause they probably don't have any frame of reference. They don't necessarily sometimes, see wines yeah. from around the rest, rest of the world and kind of see well, how sometimes they do. Um, so I think, yeah, actually it's a really good point because interesting you bring up Georgia and I think Georgia's a, you know, at the natural wine fairs that our guys go to, they always see the Georgians and they all have a big party cause they see themselves as very similar coming from very, sort of marginalised context and weird and wacky varietals no one's ever heard of and yep. historic wines, that kind of thing. But but it's that beautiful sort of untouched yeah. sort of thing that they say, well, we, this is why we've always done it. You, but Georgia, you're, just, you're just discovering it now. Yeah, and I think Georgia's benefited from really great marketing and those wines are expensive and they're expensive for a reason because they're hard to come by. But people expect Chilean wine to be cheap. Yeah. Um, and if, these, if our growers are selling their wines for cheap, they're not going to make business. You know, it's not good enough. So we, you know, they tell us the prices that they need and we pay them that per bottle of wine. And, um, you know, that means that our wines here come in more expensively than people would otherwise think Chilean wines should be. Mm-hmm. And they're still, you know, way cheaper than similar quality from Europe, but, um, because it's a really unknown part of the world. Um, you know, we have, we have struggled to, for people to pay what those wines actually deserve because, you know, every restaurant only has room on their list for one Chilean wine, if that. And, mm. Um, mm. yeah, so I think it's we're making headway. Um, places like New York and London and even Brazil are really uh, doing super well with all of the ch- natural stuff from the southern, from southern Chile. And I'm okay to I use the word they, natural. They, to a certain extent, these are markets where Chilean wine is fairly well established and, you know, there's opportunity. There's slightly more opportunities. Whereas- uh, yeah, I think it's more about um, markets where markets that are big enough that new and exciting things have a there's a, a you know a pool of buyers big enough to make that work okay um i think australia we still suffer from being a small market you know there's only room enough for so many people doing so many things sure um but but also we make a lot of wine in australia too we make a hell of a lot of wine here yeah and i don't know our so there's like maybe five or six growers that we're working with who we would sort of class as very traditional and coming from you know, five or six generations, all their young guys who are, you know, working with vineyards or buying their own grapes and doing things in the old way, purposefully and as a political statement. Mm -hmm. And they're getting some really good fame around the world. And, you know, they came to Rootstock and they go to, you know, Raw Fair and all the big things around the world. And, you know, they've become cult figures and their wines are amazing because these are varietals that you can't find anywhere else and their styles are really unique. Um, They also get funding from... And they the have European to get, Union. yeah, well, they get funding from the Chilean government as well. 
Um, yeah, okay. Yeah. I don't know I don't know about the European Union, but... Um, the jo- I mean, the Georgians. The Georgians, yeah. yeah. So the yeah. Chileans have to apply for funding and blah, blah, blah. Okay. And, you know, we've had some of our guys miss out on coming here because they couldn't get funding and, like, it's, it's the, bureaucratically they don't make it easy. Um, but I think it's something that I see taking off because we're representing a product that has a social and environmental impact that other countries can't offer a consumer. Mm -hmm. And I think from my perspective, there are so many people that want to drink wine, not for the traditional reasons, not because it tastes like this or this, or because it's has this many points or because it's from this famous region, they want to drink something that's healthy and good for them. And that has an interesting story behind it. Um, So I do see that crossing all sorts of food products and people wanting to get in touch with who grew their carrots is the same as wanting to know who made your wine and how do they make it and what do they put into it and where did it come from and what kind of farming is going on. And, yeah, and I think the social context in the south of Chile is something really important to support and to help thrive because if these guys can't continue to grow grapes, then their vineyards get ripped up and planted out to pine eucalypt plantations and that destroys communities and it destroys soils. So, yeah, there's this, like, urgency and crisis going on that kind of, for Luce and I keeps us in it. It's like a, a burning fire to want to really push this stuff and, you know, be able to buy more from people. And, mm-hmm. um, yeah, we've got this sort of long-term project because there's so many amazing winemakers, generational winemakers down there who don't put their wines into bottles and never have. Um, like a lot of our sixth or seventh generation growers, they're the first person in that line to put a wine in a bottle. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's so much opportunity there if we can, you know, provide that, infrastructure or funding to get wine from their pipa or wherever they keep store it into a bottle and export it or whatever. I mean, sadly, Santiago doesn't provide much of a market for old old school wines. Um, but, yeah, there's so much unexplored territory there and there's an urgency to do it as well because people are ripping up vineyards every day and, yeah. Well, there was also the fires. Oh, the fires, yeah. Ago. Well, last year, I think before, it was – massive rip through the entire region and i mean people do blame the forestry industry down there there's it's one of the most incredibly massive forestry industries i've ever seen and i think that exists in the world and it was a really hot drought period and machine sparks and things and then you've just got an a vast you know sprawl of pine and eucalypt that just went up in flames and wildfire wildfire and vineyards lost and you know a lot of our growers lost 250 year old vines and mm. yeah very very tragic so as far as the the original um conception of cultivar um you'd been to chile already had you discovered some of these wines how did you kind of first so so the introductions of natural wine came first yeah i would say so yeah had you been to chile before no, that we hadn't how did you how did you hear about the, these kind of we, in a traditional Chilean we wines. We had this feeling that there should be something cool going on in South America. Okay. We were just like, I reckon there's something awesome going down because we don't see anything on the market, but there's got to be something really cool. Yeah. Um, and then, so we went to Argentina. We are like, yeah, it's okay. Like, good wines, solid, you know, really nice winemaking tradition, but nothing that really... Still a little bit more commercial. Yeah. And um, we didn't really come across winemakers who were pushing boundaries. And They were actually from there? They were actually from there, exactly. Um, or that weren't, you know, just contracting Michelle Roland to come in and tell them exactly. Yeah, or had gone to, you know, study in Bordeaux or something. Yeah, um, boring town. And 
Then the year after that, we went to Chile and we went to the Casablanca Valley and we'd heard of this kind of rogue uh, Chilean winemaker doing BD Pinot and his name is Julio Donoso and um, he a, was a photographer for Vogue in Paris back in the day and, you know, an amazing dude. He's actually coming here this month. Um, and he put us in touch with another French winemaker who was uh, needing vintage assistance and Lucy, my partner, is a trained winemaker and viticulturist and has been making wine for wineries around the world for years now. So I was her little tag along and we did we worked vintage for Emmerich and it was a it was my first vintage. Um this was back in twenty fifteen. And yeah, it was a hard slog working for a French man in Chile who mm. didn't like Chile or Chileans at all and didn't really ever speak, he just yelled. Um I think I met a couple of uh Frenchmen like that. Yeah, there seemed to be a few floating around. Um Anyway, so we worked for minimum wage and with the condition that we were allowed to make wine ourselves in a corner of his winery using his equipment. Um, and we found this um, vineyard. In, so there's still a lot of old Pais up in Casablanca region as well. So we found a vineyard that was about 150 years old and it was one of these traditional bush planters, you know, very wide spacing. The vines had been there for a long time. They had a lot of inter crossing within the vineyard because the red grape pais does that naturally it's crosses and mutates very easily almost like pinot does so you go into this vineyard and you see all shades of different colored grapes and there's nothing really you know varietal about it at all um so we handpicked and we paid them you know really high prices for their grapes which we didn't think were that high at all and i think like a dollar a kilo or something and yeah we had fun making natural wine in this Frenchman's winery and you know, he'd come along and turn his nose up at what we were doing and, you know, Pais looked down on it as one of those peasant, non-noble grapes, nothing like the French. He's a very Rhone man. Um, I don't know. And I think Liz, that was the first time Liz and I had made wine together and it was just a incredible experience of um, being under duress, working for a, a crazy person mm-hmm. and, um, like, having a little baby to nurture so we got Pais and then we got some, we needed more volume because um, it was a small vineyard and so we got some organic Syrah. So we thought, you know, we're Australian Shiraz, let's do a Shiraz Pais and um, we made a wine and called it Hey Hermano because uh, watching lost a lot of Arrested Development at the time. Um, and I think that's when we were like, fuck, like making wine's also a thing. This is brilliant. Um, and so then after seeing that vineyard of Pais and asking around and, learning there was a bit of a cult revolution thing going on in the South where all of the Pais was and that there were some pretty awesome figures just making rogue wines and, you know, basically saying this to putting a finger up at the commercial wine industry. And so we saved up our dollars again, went back again the next year and spent about three or four months in the South just travelling around and meeting anybody and everybody that we could Mm. associated with anything to do with natural wine down there. Mm. And I use the word natural wine for down there because that's what they call it. Like they very clearly define what they're doing as natural as opposed to what's going on in the middle of the country, mm-hmm. which is a very unnatural way of growing anything. Um, I just, we just fell in love. They're just such amazing people. And where we always wanted to create a people-focused business and, you know, that the, the wines be tasting delicious is great and a given, but um, we needed to like and want to support the lives of who we were working with and, 
it was kind of pretty easy to tell who was in it for the right reasons and who was just exploiting or, you know, getting on the natural wine bandwagon. And, mm-hmm. um, yeah, it was, it was eye opening to see this amazing type of viticulture that we both, neither of us had ever seen before in, you know, 200 year old vines that have never been irrigated. They've never been trellis. They've never been sprayed anything. Mm-hmm. It was just, wow. Um, and the fruit quality that you get from those grapes is balanced beyond belief and, so for us to, you know, make wine without any additions or anything like that was just the easiest thing to do in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's what keeps drawing us back there. And so you put together a kind of a, a mini portfolio of, of producers there. Did you have, uh, you know, did you kind of freak out and go, God, now we're going to work out how we're going to sell these back at home? Yeah, that uh, is still the freak out, um, as I think any importer would attest to. But the thing is with Chile, no one's exporting in a reefer really and definitely no one's doing um lcl so we had to if we wanted to export in a reefer which we did because a lot of our wines are zero sulfur um sorry a refrigerated container then we had to fill it um because you know the cost of doing that was really high and um yeah so we brought quite a lot of wine in and we had to really set about selling that and it was a totally new thing on the market um and we were, like, just so lucky that there were a handful of great Soms around the country who really appreciated what was going on and who put our stuff on the poor instantly and just, yeah, it made us feel like, phew, you know, like we're not the only ones who think this is important. Yeah. Um, and oh, it was, yeah, like yeah, Soms have a tendency to kind of really get excited about something new and different and totally. something that they can introduce people to and say, oh, my God, have you tried some of these awesome yeah. wines coming out of the south of Chile? Yeah, and, you know, we I'll talk to just punters and they're like almost like, oh, you poor things, like you got Chilean wine, like where do you sell it? Um, and I'll, you know, list some amazing restaurants. They're like, oh, my God, you've got your wines there. I was like, yeah, mm. we've got our wines there because these are really smart people, like, yeah, you know, yeah, who yeah. think outside the box and that's why their venues are so amazing and yeah, um, so we're finding a whole lot of odd misconceptions about Chile from all of the angles. But um, I think as soon as you try the stuff and you sort of feel the energy, it's kind of it's pretty easy to keep going. Mm. And I think we're quite lucky in that, unlike Georgia, the price is accessible. Sure. And the styles are accessible as well. They're not as, like, skin contact driven whites as Georgia is. And um, they're pretty fresh and lively and just kind of easy to drink a lot of. Um, and it's affordable to do so as well. And I, I can imagine Australians have a, a, li- a little bit less of a hard time pronouncing the names. Totally, yeah, I think so too. Pace right? is a little bit easier to say than... Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I'm terrible at it. Anyway. Uh, cool. We do get a lot of people saying like pepinus or papaya for pipeño, which is like the <laughs> style of wine, but... Yeah, like the terminology is hard for people to get their head around. Well, somewhere. look, I, I have really enjoyed um, having the opportunity to taste some of the these beautiful wines you've been bringing in, awesome. um, and I'm looking forward to, to tasting more, uh, particularly next week. Yeah. Um, but, look, I really I, I want people to get behind um, the awesome stuff that you guys are doing as far as identifying and bringing in these really, really cool uh, wines from Chile. Um, do you want to let people know where they can find out more about uh, the Chilean wines and, and, you know, hopefully where they can buy them and yeah. social media accounts? Of course. So our website is cultivarwines.com.au. Our Instagram is cultivarvinos, so V-I-N-O-S. 
Um, you can get in touch with us via there or via the website if you want to buy wine from us. But the best place to look is Black Hearts and Sparrows, drinks.com, um, Cult of the Vine has a lot of our stuff. And then if you want to have it by the glass, places like Neighbourhood Wine and Igni and Embler and all of the lovely places around Melbourne are usually pouring them. Um, Laser Pig has one of our orange wines at the moment, which is really fun. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm, I'm surprised at the variety of venues that have been, like, interested to give something different a crack and awesome. and how wide the client pool can be or the type. Yeah, it's been pretty cool. But in a retail sense, yeah, blackartsdrinks.com and Cult of the Vine is where we're retailing at the moment. Fantastic. Uh, Alice, thank you very much <laughs> for, you, for making some time and, uh, yeah, looking forward to, you know, pouring some wine next week. Excellent. Me too. It'll be great. And thank you, listeners, for joining us on this episode of The Vincast. I have been James Scarsbrook, otherwise known as the Intrepid Wino, and you can find me on social media on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. I'm at Intrepid Wino, and you can find the podcast on Twitter at The Vincast. Uh, please check out my YouTube channel, Intrepid Wino, one word, uh, with lots of different videos, including my series uh, called Let's Taste, where uh, yeah, we'll be releasing my uh, Let's Taste video of the George wines very soon. Um, subscribe, make sure you uh, like some of the videos, comment, share them on social media. Uh, I'd love to hear from you there. You can find the podcast on a number of different platforms, including uh, iTunes, Stitcher, Player FM, Podbean, iHeartRadio, uh, hopefully soon Spotify uh, and the Google Podcast app, whatever that might be. Subscribing to the podcast means you get the newest episode as soon as it becomes available. You can also access the entire back catalogue, but also um, those platforms are a great way to provide some feedback to myself, to other listeners, and also to the guests by leaving a rating and a review, and that also helps the podcast get out to a bigger audience. I really do appreciate everyone who uh, takes the time to leave me a review, uh, so thank you for those who already have. Uh, of course, all that information is available on my website, intrepidwino.com, as well as different ways of getting in contact with me. I'd love to hear from you. Uh, if there's someone you'd love to hear on the podcast, let me know. Uh, if there's an episode you enjoyed in particular, let me know. Um, I really, really do appreciate people who get in contact with me. Uh, I've got lots more um, great episodes coming up soon. So um, until then, bye. Melbourne's Podcast Network. EarbudsNetwork.com